To help set the framework for where we're headed today, I want to show you something that Julie and I used with our children a good bit growing up. Uh, these are things we believed when we got married in 1988. I kind of put them in writing, oh, 22-ish years ago. And this is a picture of our family creed. It's uh, nothing fancy. These are all, I guess, five, six statements that we've held to and we taught our kids. Here's why. I'll just tell you the real short of it. It's because we wanted them to know who they were and what they did. Now, you should use the, the pronoun we. In other words, as they grew up, we would just say, hey, this is who we are. This is what we do. In the midst of all kinds of schedules and opinions and thoughts, um, preferences, likes and dislikes, we'd always say this is really the core of who we are and what we do. For instance, the first one talks about a loving home makes the greatest difference for all of us. And so with this phrase developed, everyone contributes, everyone receives. And that became a phrase really that a lot of us would say, and sometimes not with a smile, uh, hey, everybody contributes, everybody receives. And so we just expected that you would share in the wins and you would share in the work. That's just kind of the way it went around the family, right? Um, we talked a lot about the Bible as God's perfect guidebook for life to succeed, read, and heed. Um, we said this a lot, that the greatest legacy a man and woman can live uh, can leave is um, uh, their, their children. That's the greatest inheritance, really, is your kids. And so we'd say, let's make memories, not just money. So these are just some statements that we'd often come back to a lot as a way to kind of summarize and to remind them, again, who we are and what we do. It's our family creed. Peter does something very similar as he closes out the first section of his first letter. It's 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And in these two verses, he reminds us who we are and what we do. So take your Bibles, would you? Locate 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And as you're locating them, I'd remind you, these are the concluding verses to his first section. Do you remember his first section? It was all about our secure position in Christ. He's going to unpack as we begin the next section all about our certain privilege, which by the way, is that we would suffer for his name. So that's our certain privilege. But before he ever gets to that, he spends a good bit of time just making sure we understand our secure position. Again, who we are and what we do. And what he does in these uh, two verses is he answers three questions and leaves us with one exhortation. So somewhat like a three, two, one. So what do you say, blast off, can we do it? Let's read our text, can we? Here's 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here's what Peter would say to us, God's word to us today, but he's coming off the heels of explaining about those who did not believe how Christ was a stumbling block to them. So in contrast to that, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, ah, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Two verses that answer three questions and leave us with one exhortation. Let's take a look at these a little more in depth. By first of all, looking at our identity. Who exactly are we? Well, the answer in two words is we are God's people. This is the first point he establishes. And you'll notice that in these verses, he uses a number of Old Testament names. Now, I want to make sure you understand where he draws these names from. Okay, let me just throw some references out to you as we talk more about this identity that we are God's people. He uses uh, some names of the Old Testament Israelites to describe, of course, New Testament Gentiles. He uses words from Isaiah 43, 20, in which we're told that Israel was God's chosen race, race to declare his praise. He draws names from Exodus 19, 6, where it says they were a royal priesthood and a holy nation. He draws wording from Deuteronomy 7, 6, as well as Deuteronomy 10, 15. There they're called God's possession. And so these at least four references, maybe look at in your small group, perhaps over your dinner table, are just uh, places where Peter would go back and use Old Testament language and titles to describe New Testament people. And watch this, he would even take um, labels for the Jewish people and he was applying them now to Gentile people. So what's going on with that? Why does Peter do that? Listen very carefully here, because essentially Peter is equating New Testament Gentiles with Old Testament Jews. He's saying both are God's people. He's incorporating these dispersed New Testament Gentiles into the assembled Old Testament Israelites. He's showing there's not a demarcation. Now listen very carefully. It's not so much that the church has replaced Israel as much as it is that the church and Israel are now one spiritual body in Christ. And I would maintain, based on Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, that it's not about the Jew or the Gentile, but it's about the one new man called Christ. So whether Jew or Gentile, we are Christian. And this is what Paul said, that he's taken the two and made one new man and it's this new man, Christ. Paul would say in Galatians that all those who believe are the true Israel of God. And so I just want you to hear this very clearly. This section of scripture shows quite plainly that there is an incorporation and there is one people of God. And if you are a believer, you are them. Isn't that comforting and encouraging to know that you are God's people? He uses names to describe you. He says you are a chosen race, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, and a, a people for God's possession. He's talking to you. And I find that uh, deeply edifying, don't you? Now, let's stay there for a moment and understand more about these titles because there's some rich morsels in them that I want you to kind of chew on with me. He says, first of all, that 
We are a chosen race. The word race there is not the word for ethnicity. I prefer the word, uh, some of your translations would say a chosen generation is the word genos. It means beginning or um, like a, a generation. And so um, he's speaking here of a, of a generation, a spiritual group that God has chosen. So watch this. He's not speaking here of physical ethnicity, but of divine election. And this is true and very obvious because these readers were not all Jewish readers. He can't be speaking here of some kind of physical descendancy because these were Gentile readers. So he must be meaning, wow, if you are born again, your, can we say race, your generation is of a spiritual nature and you've been chosen by God. So you can see he's moving now to more of a physical, excuse me, more of a spiritual emphasis in describing who we are as God's people. He says we are a royal priesthood. The word royal means kingly. And here he's just simply saying that in the past there was one tribe, the tribe of Levi, that had the access to the Holy of Holies. They were the line of priests, the sons of Aaron. They were the ones who had the function and access of of all the priests. But now he's saying, by the way, it's not just those in, in Levi's tribe. It's now all of you. You're a kingdom of priests. In, in other words, in, in God's people, everybody gets the upgrade. Isn't that sweet to know? I mean, if you've flown, you know what it's like to be standing in line, right? And they call for the first class people, and they call for medallion level, then they call for sky priority. And you're like, man, I'm way at the bottom of this list, aren't I? You, I mean, is there any other place where you just are, 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 are so categorized according to status as waiting in line for a flight? It's like so demeaning, isn't it? Like, we know who the rich people are. We know who the poor people are. Thank you very much, right? Guess what? In God's family, everybody gets the upgrade. We're all priests. Hallelujah. We have access to God. We function as priests. We make sacrifices to God. Man, hallelujah. And by the way, this idea of the, the a priesthood of every believer really speaks to a lot of us who have baptistic roots. That's one of the key tenets in baptistic, um, can I use the word philosophy? That's even the right word there. It's the, it's the P in Baptist, that there's a, a priesthood for every believer and because of Christ's death and, and, and tearing away the curtain, we now have access to God. It's not just one tribe or one person, all of us. We are a kingdom of priests. He also says we're a holy nation. Here's where he uses the word ethnicity. This word nation is the word ethnos. But notice what he does. He does not describe this nation now in physical geographical terms. He says this nation and kind of use the word, this ethnicity is known by its behavior, its distinctiveness. We are a holy ethnicity. So watch this. He no longer, speaking of Peter, he's not seeing God's people as determined by geographical boundaries, but by spiritual behavior. This is why we lean in with you and lean into you regarding sexual behavior, your generosity, the marked difference between God's people and the world's people. This is why we are a holy nation. We're not marked any longer by a, a land. We're not marked by boundaries. We're marked by holy behavior, church. This is how people know we're God's people. And then he says we are a, watch this phrase, a possessed people. <laughs> For some of us, that may be more true than others, right? 
In other words, we're a people for God's own possession. This speaks of vertical ownership. And so let's just repeat what we looked at several years ago in a, in a series on autonomy. And we clearly and biblically dismantled the thought that there's any kind of autonomy in believers. You don't have autonomy. What you live under is what we call baltonomy, which is that you were purchased with a price. Your body now belongs to God, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So we live with the filter of autonomy, like I belong to God. He has purchased me. He's paid a price for me. And so there's a priority to how I live. And it's with God as the owner. One translation says this, that we are a peculiar people. I kind of like that word. It fits some of us, doesn't it? Like, but here, when you hear that based on this text, don't think odd, think owned. God owns you. And so you are a possession of the Lord. You are a peculiar people in that you have been purchased at a great price by God. So, so do you see these four names? A chosen generation, a, a kingly priesthood, a, a holy ethnicity, a, a people for God's possession. And I agree with Wayne Gruden when he says this, that in these verses, Peter says that God has bestowed on the church, these New Testament Gentiles, the blessings that are promised to Israel in the Old Testament, meaning this, what more could be needed in order to say with assurance that the church has now become the true Israel of God. It's one people of God, universally, those who believe in Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. And if you believe that, you are God's people. Amen, church? That's your identity. Now, this ownership that God has of us means he can define our obligation. This uh, purchase of us means that he can define our purpose. And this is what he does next. Number two, let's look at what our purpose is. Remember, we're looking at who we are and what we do. In the second part of verse nine, he talks about God's mission. So we are God's people and we're to be about God's mission. In the first part, he answers the who question. Now he answers the what question. And look what he says, beginning with the word that. This is what we call a... a, a um, a henna of purpose. In the, in the Greek, the word that is henna, and it's most literally translated in order that. So this text could say, we are a people for his own possession in order that. Here's this result now. Because of all that God has done, here's what should happen. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And just before we dive into the idea of proclaiming his excellencies, notice that uh, Peter here continues to spiritualize, really, uh, our identity and purpose. Because in the Old Testament, with these uh, Israelites who were a holy nation by marked boundaries, they had a promised land and, and so forth, they were called out of Egypt into a land. Peter here says, no, you've been called out of darkness into light. So there's this real spiritual emphasis happening to saying, that's saying to us, listen, you're no longer marked by a land. You're not uh, you know, defined by physical boundaries. 
uh, or places. You have been called out of darkness into light. And wherever God's spirit does that and wherever he indwells you, then you are God's people, Jew or Gentile. He says, this is what God has done. He's called us out of that darkness into his light. And he's done that so that we can proclaim the excellencies of God. It's a great phrase. It's quite general in one sense. And I'm glad. I'll share why here just in a moment. Let's understand first what the phrase means. The word proclaim just means to declare, to shout forth, to, to say It's got a verbal type of tone to it. It comes from the word angel and the word exit. It's ex angelo. An angel was a messenger, someone sent to give God's news. And of course, the word ex means out of. And so out of us comes God's message. Does that make sense? That's what we are. We're to proclaim God's excellencies. The word there is virtue, It means perfection. You could translate this moral uh, uh, perfection, moral excellence. In other words, this, this beauty and bright and glorious nature to God. This is what we're to proclaim, to declare, to say, to message. That's our purpose. And here's why I'm glad that Peter leaves this somewhat general. Because that's done in a lot of ways. Wouldn't you agree? But aren't you glad that this is not driven by personality? Like, well, that's for all the extroverts. He doesn't say that. He doesn't demand it be done a certain way. He doesn't say you got to go be a missionary across the ocean or you have to be a pastor. What I'm envisioning here is Peter in his mind saying, wherever you are as a dispersed Gentile, Wherever you are as a dispersed Jew, whatever your occupation, profession, personality, however you're wired, make sure that you lean that into showing just how beautiful and bold and perfect and excellent God is. Don't you love that? Like I love the way this is just general enough to include everyone who is in this family of God. So businessmen, Thank you for running a business where you can honestly, with integrity, make money that supports the work of getting the gospel to those who've never heard. Thank you. Nurses and doctors, thank you for caring for people on fields where there's very little help, perhaps, or even locally, where there are those who are heightened to their need. And often in times of medical emergencies, people are much more apt to hear the good news Tellers and IT workers, um, housewives and those who are raising their kids at home. Thanks for raising children whose main goal is the mission of God. We could go through all kinds of professions, couldn't we? I'm sure I'm missing a host of them. My point is this. I love the way in this text, Peter says this. If you're in God's family, if you're one of his people, then regardless of personality, profession, occupation, make sure that you are declaring, proclaiming the the virtuous perfection of God. Your life should be about showing the beauty of God. And the question is, is it? Now notice something here. 
the insinuation, the, the understood implication is that that's an external focus. I mean, we're not showing the beauty of God to the man in the mirror. We're not cornering ourselves in a room saying, okay, hear this self one more time. I'm not saying we shouldn't preach to ourselves, but can we just admit that a casual reading of this set of verses, I think to the, to the natural observer would say this, there's something going on here that when God's people realize who they are and all that God has done for them and to them, they want to shout that out to those who are yet to be God's people. This is kind of the point of the verses. So are you living your life in such a way that it has an external focus? That you are lifting your eyes and seeing the fields that are white to harvest. That you're praying the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into his field. Is this your posture? So that no matter your profession, personality, occupation, you're right. You're still making sure that you lean everything about who you are and what you do into that goal. An external focus so that those who have yet to hear of Christ, hear of Christ and see God's beauty. Now I want to thank you for something. I want to thank you for being this kind of church. We're not this kind of church perfectly. I'm not this kind of pastor perfectly. But generally speaking, you guys do this really well. I love that about you. You did this last week at Easter. We called for a number of adjustments for the sake of, of many who we knew would be here that day more than usual and perhaps had not heard the good news of Christ. And so we had two simultaneous venues. And you know what? We never heard a peep from anybody. Many of you just marched right upstairs. Yeah, I'll take the, I'll take the upstairs venue, knowing that it'd be live streamed. Everything else was live, but just the sermon live stream. And you said, no problem at all. We went right up there. In fact, some of you told me later, like, Todd, it was like you were in the room. Like, we'd be good with a screen every week. I mean, you just, you just were willing to say, hey, if that's what it takes, if we can do that, let's do it. You never griped. Many more of you parked off site. Thank you. I know it's not a big deal just walking across the street, just a few more steps and across the parking lot, right? But can I just remind you again, it's easy how comfortable Americans can get and how we can begin to expect things. And one thing I love about you guys is that that's just a, a rare thing around here. You have a unique way of accepting challenges. I, I told someone the other day, I said, you know, our people are just a gritty kind of people. Like, you know, every church has its culture. I think I would probably say to you, I'm a gritty kind of preacher. I like to dive into the text, pull out its meaning. I want to apply it in a heavy fashion. Uh, and so I think even our people, we, we kind of like a challenge. Like when we mentioned we got to park off site, a lot of you said, we're in. Like you just jumped at the chance to park like next to Menards. You just were all over it, right? <laughs> and I'm being a little facetious here. I'm simply saying to you this. Last week, you showed me that you want to live with an external focus. Uh, you've done this even now as we adjusted two services. You know, we, we realized that our three services earlier were creating some pinch points. And so we adjusted to two services. We've seen our church grow uh, in numbers by going back to two services. We cut the stage back. We made more room for chairs. And we added more chairs. And they were different and smaller chairs. And I've heard from some of you. In fact, our, our elders have heard that, you know, hey, the chairs are a little lighter in weight. They're not as, 
as sturdy, so they move around more, and sometimes the aisles are too long, and it's hard to get in and out during communion. And, and so we're hearing that. We're trying to develop some ways to, to kind of fix that. And yet, in the middle of those comments and that feedback, it wasn't like you were making the most of the incidentals. Like, you're making us aware of it. But what I love about you is this. You're not saying, hey, man, I didn't have that brown chair that was bigger and more comfortable and more sturdy. What's up with that? I'm suffering for Jesus now. Like, they didn't come out of your mouth. Praise the Lord, right? And I admit they, they, they move a little easier. It's hard to keep them straight. Sometimes in communion, it's hard to get in and out in a long row. I realize that. We're working on that. We're going to try to do the best we can. But can we just say this? I'm glad we got chairs, aren't you? Amen. I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic here. I was in some house churches in Egypt just two weeks ago where chairs were not there. In fact, in one house church I was in, there were, I think, four to five rooms in the entire apartment. One was an eating area, one was a kitchen, and then I think there were three other rooms. So I said to our host, through a translator, how many folks live in this house? I think there were 21 of us there at the time. The host said to me, three families. I said, oh, three families? She goes, yes, 17 people live here. Each family gets one room. I said, thank God for chairs. You with me? And sometimes we can become so narrow and, and, and myopic in how we see things that we forget we, we really are blessed. And so I just want to thank you for having an external focus, yes, last week, even throughout the last several months of adjustment, so that we can make sure that our focus isn't on ourselves, but it's external. It's on those who've yet to hear, whether they're ones here right in our neighborhood or far away. And I would remind you, refusing to have an external focus is exactly and precisely how a church dies a slow death. You see, no one knows it when it's happening because we all like to be taken care of. Everyone loves attention. And so sometimes when you feel like you're getting that, you're getting really comfortable, you like it in the moment, but 15 years later, someone says, hey, what happened to our church? It's dead. At that point, it's too late. It died 15 years ago when we stopped looking at those outside of our walls and only focused on who was inside our walls. And I refuse to let that happen on my watch. I'm committed to helping us together in all of our imperfection and all of our humanness do our best by God's spirit to maintain a focus that's external. Knowing that our job is to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light and inviting those who've yet to experience that, come and see. And this is really what's at the heart of our mission going forward. For 17 plus years, we've maintained this kind of posture. We've wanted to have eyes that see beyond the back wall of the auditorium. And we've wanted to do whatever we could to make sure that that's our goal. And the elders have laid this out to you in your small groups. Maybe some of you weren't in there and couldn't hear all the conversation, but it is our desire to continue to press forward with having a multiplying, reproducing environment to continue to press into what it means to have a church who makes disciples, who makes disciples, who makes disciples, and being willing to, to make whatever adjustment we have to for that to occur. 
And so we're praying that by 2035, we'll see God send as many people as he calls to at least 100 different outposts. We are praying that 25 of those outposts will be church plants in Iowa. Now, that's just not our job only. We're praying that all those churches we've planted and will plant will also board this train, so to speak, and that together we can really attack the idea of sending as many people as possible to these gospel outposts. You say, what's a gospel outpost? It's a gospel-centered ministry. It may be a mission hospital in Mali. It may be a translation work in the jungles of Indonesia. It may be a church plant in the public library of Ankeny. In other words, we just want to make sure that we're either starting and planting churches or sending people to gospel-centered ministries because we want to make sure that we're declaring and proclaiming the praises of uh, the excellencies of God, showing his beauty and brightness and boldness. And so we're just continuing to do all we can in this environment to create a culture of people who are ready to reproduce, an environment of multiplication. So small group leaders, yes, this fall, we're going to ask you once again, will you multiply your group? That means some of you have a really good friend who's co-leading with you. Will you lead two different groups, please? But they're my best friend. I know, but the mission of God matters more. So will you lead two groups instead of one? And we can just go down the list of talking about how these are, are things we're embracing but it's because we have a purpose and we didn't invent it. We didn't write some strategy or, or some you know, mission statement. God gave it to us and he can give it to us because we're his people. So we're God's people on God's mission. And the way we're gonna do that here locally and specifically is by just really seeking to send as many people as possible to at least 100 different outposts all over the world. We're not starting all those, of course, but out of those different outposts that we see our people go to for two years or more, God, would you empower us to at least plant 25 churches? So far, we're at about 20. Do you know that? You take so far what's happened within this church and then our church plants. We've planted about seven churches. We've sent to about 12 or so outposts. I think, so I'm just comfortable saying 20-ish. Can you get with me on that? 20-ish. We've got 80 more to go, but that's not out of the realm of possibility. As the churches we plant continue to multiply, as we multiply by 2035, could we say there are a hundred places, there's a hundred gospel ministries where God has sent people? I want someone to say to you, why do you do that? Then you give them verse 10. Because here's our motivation for all of that action. Here's why we stay focused on the mission. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. I love the way Peter in this text starts with an internal focus first about who we are, says that has an external effect, and then jumps right back to saying, don't you remember what it's like to be outside of God's family? But aren't you glad that you're no longer outside? You're in. You once had no mercy, but now you do. You weren't so, you once weren't apart, but now you are. He again here uses some Old Testament language, by the way. This is very intriguing. The phrase, we're not a people, and the phrase, 
had not received mercy or actually the names of two of Hosea's children. His second born was a daughter. And I won't go into the Hebrew here other than to say, when you translate it out, her name means basically uh, no mercy. And God, of course, did this through Hosea, who married Gomer, and they had these children. He did this to show Israel their waywardness and their backslidden condition. And now he's saying to these Gentile believers, that was your condition once, but no longer. You once were without mercy, but not any longer. You once were without a family, but now you're God's people. And so he uses these names. The third name here, excuse me, the second name was his, um, one of his kids that was a son. It referred to being not a people. So I'm just saying this to you, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds here. What Peter is doing is pulling in some Old Testament illustrations and language and applying it now to New Testament Gentiles. I think he's really showing here some scriptural and spiritual symmetry and saying, guess what? You are what they should have been. You are God's people. You're the chosen race, the kingdom of priests. You're the holy nation. You've received mercy. You're now God's people. You're one new man in Christ. And the implication is this, because you've received this mercy, now extend this mercy. All of God's mission is rooted in God's mercy. Let me prove it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter four, a beautiful passage in which Paul uses the metaphor of light and darkness, much like Peter does here, to talk about his ministry. And now we should be as, be, uh, live as witnesses, we should pray, we should work to this end that those who've been blinded would see the glorious light of the gospel. But how does he introduce that entire section? 2 Corinthians 4, 1, watch this. Seeing we have this ministry because of God's mercy. You should read the verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 1. It will remind you, every bit of the mission we're on is rooted in the mercy we've been given. You see, church, you're two things simultaneously. You are a recipient and you're an ambassador. You have received mercy. You have received peopleship. You once did not have mercy. You once were not a people. But together and individually, guess what? God has been gracious and shown us mercy and made us his people. And so we're recipients, but we're also ambassadors who now, as recipients, declare his excellencies. That we've been brought out of darkness to light. And the sense is, so if you've yet to come to God's light, please hear us and come. This is who we are and what we do. In really plain terms, this is our family creed. So church, what do you say we live like it? Let's live like who we actually are. And that is recipients of and ambassadors of God's mission of mercy. In fact, that's really our take-home exhortation. Remember, these two verses answer three questions and leave us with one exhortation. Here it is. Will you read it with me with passion and vigor? Let's live like who we are. 
recipients of and ambassadors for God's mission of mercy. This is really Peter's main thought in these two verses that close out section one, that we have received mercy and we want to extend mercy. So let's live like who we are, knowing what we do. We're recipients and we're ambassadors. Now, I don't think in this auditorium, as we look at that statement, that exhortation, I don't think anyone here would, would, would disagree. I really don't. I believe better about you. I don't think anyone here as a member of our church would stand up and say, Todd, I've got issues with that. You just not want to do that because it's so clear in Scripture. It's, the, it's not just this section, but throughout the New Testament, the Old Testament, both in Israel's life, and then, of course, as they're incorporated now and Jew and Gentile into the church. And this, is, this is God's heart that he extend mercy, and then those who receive his mercy also extend that mercy. So no one here is going to say, Todd, I'm just, I'm just not on board. But can I be really frank with you? Can I be pastorally transparent with you? There are moments when this truth seems to kind of get blurry. When this purpose for our lives as God's people, it can sometimes begin to fade. When the memory of, those, of that moment when God showed us mercy and saved us, it doesn't move us anymore. We find ourselves cold, ambivalent. That's why I always want to remind you that this is why we're here. This is who we are and what we do. This is the church's family creed. We are God's people. And our purpose is to show the world just how beautiful he is. This became very personal for me again a few weeks ago. I'm praying even as I wrap things up here that you'll have one of those very same moments where even though you would agree with this, perhaps in this very moment, God's spirit would make this even more personal yet again. I was praying in my office one morning and I was thinking about this section of scripture, even just about our church and praying for many of you. I was processing as well, just as I prayed through names, just the number of people that God has brought to us and then sent out from us. And initially, it, it was a moment of like deep joy, like, Lord, I'm just very humbled that you would use our church in that way. We're just an old Craigslist kind of church meeting in a warehouse. I'm really nothing that smart or great. I don't have a ton of skill, but Lord, you've, you've chosen to just rally us around your mission. Like, I'm really honored by that. And I began to kind of recount, like, um, you know, the church plants. When we first planted Bondurant, sent those 40 folks out. We had just moved into this building, uh, and they were core leaders. They were core givers, servers. I mean, losing those 40, it hurt. Now I thought about the dozens we sent with Life Change and City Point. I remember sending Tamor to Kazakhstan, Jason and David to Albia, Eric and those dozen or so to Adele. And I thought about just a few weeks ago, sending 50 or so to Ankeny Gospel Church just down the road. 
And I thought, Lord, that time I'm grateful. And I said to him, I said, yeah, I, I kind of wish some of them were here, actually, but I'm grateful. Thank you for that opportunity. But that's, I kind of kept counting. That's a lot of people. It's just, uh, maybe they could have been here, but no, I'm glad they're gone. I'm glad they're, they're, that we sent them. And then I began to think about those partners we've sent, you know, um, beginning, first of all, I think, with uh, Hensel's in Jamaica, just that commissioning that took place right here. And then his death on the field later. And even just watching Sarah's journey to missions once again. Even right now today, Sarah's in Ukraine serving and helping with refugee ministry. And she normally sits right in one of these chairs with you. I thought about other partners we've sent. Um, whether it's as an airline mechanic helping flights get to unreached places. Whether it's nurses and doctors in mission hospitals that serve an entire country. Uh, whether it's church planting and Villages that have no written language yet. Well, we've got couples, people, individuals in those places. These aren't made up stories. Think about how we sent a couple once to repair radio towers in the Congo for a two-year term and as well as someone to work with missionary housing in North India where it's much more dangerous than Southern India. We've got a graphic artist in the Middle East. We just saw her recently. So that I just was, all this was kind of flooding my mind and, and I was processing this and I just began to uh, realize what was still to come. We've got three couples in the pipeline. We've got some church planters we're talking to. And I was very excited. And yet I began to feel the weight of this. I'm like, God. So I said to him, I said, God, how many more do you want? I said that to him. Like, like haven't we been generous enough? Like, how many more do you want? And I think in my moment, I was uh, kind of looking for a number. Just being just really frank with you. I know that's illogical. I know it's actually uh, unwise. But I think I was thinking maybe God would like, okay, Todd, I need a hundred more and I'll be good. Maybe I was thinking, hey, God, if, if I give you a hundred more, how about you give me 200 more? So I had all these crazy thoughts in my head, you know, and I was thinking about who's still to go, the Cowans perhaps to Mali, thinking about the McConnells to an unreached area. We've got another couple we've yet to release their names to you, but they're looking at an unreached area. And I just became uh, overwhelmed with like having to let go. Like, okay, um, I expected you to call them, but I didn't expect you to call my kids, Right? Like, I told the church, I'm coming after your kids. I didn't mean that you would come after mine, right? <laughs> so all these thoughts are in my head. And I said, okay, God, how many more? And I'll, I'll never forget what God said to me. I had some music playing in the background. I was praying through your names and just these situations. In fact, I set my playlist that day to the topic of surrender, and I pressed one song to repeat. So it's on its fifth or sixth rotation. In fact, during this prayer time, Taylor popped in and said, how many times are you going to play that song? <laughs> but at the moment, I was just a bucket of tears because here's what God said to me in that very moment. All of them. I want to say to you, I was expecting that, but I wasn't. I probably was trying to make a deal with God. But he said, all of them. And the Holy Spirit gave me these precious words that I wrote down and I'm holding on to. And I do believe, you know me, I believe in the gift of prophecy. I believe all the gifts are available. I believe in the Holy Spirit speaks to us. 
And these aren't words on par with scripture. I'm not saying that. But in that moment, the Holy Spirit said to me so plainly, Todd, imagine an entire flock flooding the mission of God. Yeah, I, I said, that's, that's what I want to give my life to. That's what I'll give my kids to. That's what I'll give my marriage to. I'm in for that. An entire flock flooding the mission of love. Because you know what? That's who we are and what we do. That's our family creed. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, we're God's people. We're an ethnicity known by our distinctiveness and our holiness. We've been divinely chosen by God. And we're to declare his beauty to those who've yet to hear so that they too can experience being brought out of darkness into light. And God said, Todd, I want all of them. So I want you to know, I hope and pray you will commit your entire life to the mission of God. I didn't say you should go across the ocean. Maybe you should stay as a businessman or businesswoman and do really well at that and then give generously to and through your church so that can happen more. Maybe you should stay as a first-class parent raising your kids with the goal that they'll give their life away to the cause of God's mission, not necessarily go up and play on every traveling team that exists. Maybe you should give your life to being the best employee possible because you're surrounded by a lot of folks who are just strictly pagan. So locally, you're like this first-class witnesser. I'm not trying to say what you're doing doesn't matter. I'm saying whatever you're doing, lean that against the wall of the mission of God that those who do not yet know Christ, have not yet experienced mercy, are not yet part of his family, will see the beauty of God through everything you do and will say, I want in. And can you imagine an entire church, an entire flock flooding that mission with every personality type, every occupation, every profession saying, that's what I'm about. And sure, some of those should go to far-flung places, to villages where there's no written language, to hospitals in Africa, to places across our world where they need witnesses and proclaimers. And some of those should stay and work hard and save and give and be hospitable and send. All of that should happen. Every bit of the church should lean its entire ministry against the wall of God's mission. That's what I'm mobilizing you to do. And when you join me in saying to God, I'm in. If you want all of us, count me in. And I'll let you know up front, that's the end game of my leadership here. No one gets a hall pass. No one gets to get out of line early. Every single person, from my perspective, I'm going to do all I can to pastor and lead you to giving your life to the mission of God. Because that's who we are and that's what we do. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, that's our family creed. This morning, I'm asking you to live like you're part of the family and give your life to the mission of God.